Hey there, crypto curious gang. It's time to plug in and play with the Blockheads at Blockcast. Strap in for our weekly whirlwind tour through the blockchain jungle where NFTs, shiny coins, and crypto titans tango. Served up with a side of spicy insights and the crunchiest bits of the digital sphere. Let's dive into the decentralized deep end. Blockcast is live in three, two, one. Welcome to Blockcast, your podcast for all things blockchain and digital assets. With me today is Jason Allegranti, Chief Legal and Compliance Officer at Fireblocks. Also co-hosting with me is Timothy Han. Hi, everyone. He's the General Manager at Blockhead. And I'm Timothy Mazir, Managing Editor at Blockhead. Jason, welcome. It's great to be here, guys. You are in Singapore for the Singapore Fintech Festival. How was that and what do you speak about? Yeah, we did a panel uh, looking at the intersection of uh, venture capital investment and digital asset space. We had absolutely incredible panelists. We had a commissioner from the CFTC. We had Coinbase representative. We had the head of global regulatory for Chainalysis. And we had a representative from Rivet Capital, which is an investor in, in Fireboxes, as well as a number of other companies. Last year, we spoke to Ben Bolton, your colleague on one of our Talking Heads videos. So it's great to have Fireblocks with us again. Jason, for our listeners who are new to Fireblocks, what does the company do and what's your role there? Yeah, sure. So uh, Fireblocks is a SaaS platform. Um, it enables businesses, uh, our customers are only uh, businesses, but it enables businesses to create wallets, to store digital assets and to securely manage them. It's really, uh, when you get down to it, it's a lot more than that. It's it's really a, a complete solution for interacting with the digital asset ecosystem, if, if that's what you want it to be. My role there as chief legal officer is to um, really advise on a global basis on legal issues impacting the firm. Of course, today that includes a lot of regulatory work as we navigate this this landscape for regulation, which is really changing quite quite quickly. You've had a long journey from uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York to Fireblocks. What inspired your shift towards this space? And maybe you could tell us about the journey along the way. Yeah, a great question. I mean, to be honest, the first inkling of wanting to come into this space had more to do with what I wanted out of a day-to-day job, right? And so I, I was already a lawyer at the time. I was practicing law and I had a very interesting practice. But I, I found for myself that I was interested in a wider range of topics, you know, be it um, business strategy and, and things like that. So I was looking to broaden my perspective. And then coming into a blockchain-based company, or really the first one I went to was also in infrastructure like Fireboxes, I found that I was actually really able to leverage my experience in the financial services space. And a large part of that has to do with the state of affairs right now in terms of the law that applies to blockchain-based applications and services. We do right now a lot of analogizing two laws that were passed to apply to financial services. We don't have, with a few notable exceptions like Mika in Europe, we don't have a whole bunch of laws that today strictly address themselves to uh, digital assets. Jason, I want to move uh, on to talk about uh, your panel at SFF. So you mentioned it was uh, kind of like about venture capital and digital assets, right? I'm assuming it's about investment in the space. Can you maybe share a little bit more about how VC firms are looking at 
tokens versus equity and you know what are some of the legal considerations that they have to make when deciding whether or not they should allocate funds into a, a token project it's been a major story in the venture capital space right and you've seen a number of tokens and a number of projects right where they've either issued tokens in, in lieu of equity or you know other arrangements as the investors and, and the issuers see fit but it's been it's been really interesting because it's created a number of related challenges, right? And so we actually have a number of uh, customers at Fireblocks who are themselves venture capitalists. And the reason they've come to Fireblocks is because they're, they're actually holding and sitting on all these tokens that, that have been issued in, in connection with their, their venture activities. So how to manage those tokens, how to invest those tokens is, is now a real story for some of the larger uh, venture capital names in the space. Uh, so I guess, you know, that brings us to uh, the next question, which is, you know, how, what, what do you think are some of the most pressing challenges in compliance, risk mitigation uh, in the digital assets industry today? I, I mean, in your view, based on the clients that you, you speak with, as your, in your capacity as a legal, uh, uh, chief legal officer in, in Fireblocks? Yeah, well, uh, we're a wallet provider, of course, so, so forgive, you know, my vision being, <laughs> being focused on that. But from where I sit, it's the security of the asset, the security of the wallet that is absolutely the most critical thing, right? It's, it is the fundamental thing. And particularly if you're thinking about starting a business or building a business in the digital asset space, knowing that you, uh, you have a wallet that's secure, it's the table stakes, right, for even getting started. And, you know, what, what concerns me is that even at this more mature stage of development, we, we continue to see hacks, we continue to see companies developing technology in-house that, you know, later turns out to have vulnerabilities. These can be all sorts of things, whether technological or operator error things that can happen. So again, for us, it's the security of the wallet, and, and we'd love to see more done even at the level of regulation or at the level of standard setting to create some uh, certainty in the market that any particular wallet provider is providing a wallet that's up to a certain minimum standard. Okay, it's really interesting that you brought up the wallet. So I was discussing with Tim Mazier a couple of days ago. We understand that your wallet is an MPC wallet, right? I guess Fireblocks holds a, a, some key shares. Client side holds a couple of key shares. So, you know, well, God forbid, if Fireblocks does close down one day, what happens to the key shares that you guys hold? Yeah, I mean, this, this is, again, this is an absolutely fundamental question, right? We, we get this question all the time. I, I particularly like it. There are some jurisdictions I visit where it's prefaced with 90% of our uh, ecosystem is using you. What happens yeah, <laughs> if, yeah. if you go away? Um, but so what I would say is that we issue on day one not only a private key share to the customer. That is the only key share that can control the assets in the account. But we also issue them a backup and recovery package. And Fireblocks is built on the relevant blockchain, mm -hmm. right? So all of the assets are actually on the blockchain. They're not in some vault that Fireblocks manages. They're not uh, attached to some internal ledger that we have. Um, so, so the customer using the backup recovery package is, in the case of catastrophic Fireblocks failure, able then to go and, and reset its own system and access the assets, which are, again, sitting on the blockchain. The relevant blockchains and you know move them out onto uh, to another service provider right and, and you know uh, financial institutions today are increasingly diving into digital assets we see bny Mellon must have been sometime late last year when they started offering ethereum and bitcoin custody you know franklin templeton launching a tokenized money market fund so you know how is fireblocks you know 
tailoring your approach to meet the needs of this influx of financial institutions into this space? We believe basically that, that banks are special and, uh, and, and they're special in at least two ways, right? One, looking at the opportunity side of things, banks are the place where deposits sit and they're also the place where a lot of other legacy financial assets sit. Those could be bonds, those could be securities, uh, you know, down the line. And, and the opportunity there, right, is tokenization. So we view stablecoins uh, uh, as a form of tokenization, and we view um, traditional assets tokenized as really uh, a coming wave and a use case for, for digital assets that seems like its time is, is, is near. This was actually a topic on the, on the panel that we discussed at SFF. So from the opportunity perspective, we think banks are really important. And then there's the challenge side of dealing with banks, right? So mm. <laughs> it's because banks are so important. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the traditional financial services regulators have noticed, and, and there are a lot of very complex rules having to do with banks including what kinds of service providers are allowed to interact yep. with and be vendors for banks. And so, you know, we have actually a lot of experience at this point in looking at and responding to those rule books, but we are continuing to do more to try to meet our banking customers where they are. And, you know, that could be different permutations on how we distribute and deliver our products. Um, and, and, and it, it, you know, I think it encompasses new initiatives that we have. Like we, we've actually launched um, a consulting team which will come on which will come on site and uh, and and help uh, help banks understand the space and will understand their needs uh, in turn. Right. Jason, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what Fireblocks is doing to help web2 companies or brands enter the web3 space. I guess non-custodial wallets are a key thrust in moving more of uh, in moving adoption towards web3. Could you Speak a little bit about that and how, how you work with different companies and brands. Our, our wallets are conceived as being non-custodial. Um, again, the, the idea is that the customer, um, our direct customer, should be in control of the digital assets and, and be in control of the wallets. What we found in the Web3 space, and it's like, how do you take this model of having a direct customer that's an enterprise customer, and how do you expand on that, right? So we introduced what we call a wallet as a service, but it's basically taking this concept, okay, we have a non-custodial wallet. What does that mean? It means that the customer has the controlling key share. What if the customer wants to build a Web3 experience for its own customers who might be thousands or millions on the retail side, right? Well, you take that controlling key share and what if you push it down a level further? So now instead of one step removed, you're two steps removed. And what if you can do that at scale? And we realized when we built this product that we were able to do it at scale. And so so now if, you, if you're a business and you say, okay, I want to create a, a Web3 experience, I want to control it, I want it to be tailored, I want it to be all the things that I want it to be precisely, you can come to Firebox and, and using the wallet as a service, you can launch something that looks like that. And the end user customer, I mean, you know, like incredibly, right? It's very cool. The end user customer is the person who will ultimately control still whatever value or, or asset uh, resides in that wallet you've created for them. Yeah, I think account abstraction has been a, a big thing, right? I mean, we want to be able to interact with an interface that we're familiar with. Single sign-on logins, 2FA, biometric verification. And, and these are things that banks are familiar with as well, right? Uh, in terms of how customers deal with their accounts. So I think that's, a, that's, that's an extremely important point when we think about you know, onboarding the next million, you know, billion people onto decentralized technology. Uh, it's important that we give them an interface that they are familiar with, uh, that they recognize, that they you know, know how to use. 
Jason, as an insider uh, in the space, you know, what areas of regulation or compliance do you see that you feel is not getting enough attention right now? Yeah, I mean, for for me, it's the efforts, um, it's the efforts of the industry to to comply with law. Actually, and sorry, maybe this is a boring answer, but as an insider, what I see is a lot of concern, right? That that digital assets are are being used for, you know, criminal or terrorist financing because we've had some very public failures recently, right? That that the industry is is somehow um, not on the right path. And you know, my my perspective is so different. What what we're trying to build at Firebox, we're trying to integrate as many compliance service providers as possible. We're trying to create an ecosystem that can be a compliant ecosystem. And you know, to to the contrary of what I think the narrative has become, we're proactively going out to regulators and saying, hey, what do you what do you need from the ecosystem, and what do you need from service providers like Firebox? to help you get comfortable. And I think I think for me, this is the work that's going unseen right now, but I hope we'll, um, we'll have a, a really great impact going forward. Yeah, I think it's uh, what you said is absolutely true. I just had a conversation with a digital asset service provider in Singapore uh, just last week, late last week, right? They are currently, they have, a, they have an exemption from the MAS under the Payment Services Act. And so I asked them, you know, do you have any concrete plans to get, you know, licensed or, or you know, perhaps think about a major payments institution license? You know, what, 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 what's on the cards here? And the answer was actually very sobering, right? They said, we are very comfortable with this gray area right now. <laughs> I mean, and, and that's fine, right? Uh, uh, um, uh, if as a business, you can operate in a gray area. But, but how long does that last? That's not a, I guess that's not a moat for your business. And the, the way the industry is going is very clear, right? There is a, a regulation is coming out. Financial institutions are coming in. I think the only way forward uh, for any respectable digital asset company is to think about how they should get licensed you know, under whatever framework is available globally. Uh, I think I think that's so smart. I mean, there there are a lot of ways to think about regulation. There are a lot of ways to think about entering or not entering what I call the regulatory perimeter, right? And one of those ideas is exactly as you said. It's like how do we take our business and build a moat around it? And sometimes the answer to that is we're going to charge headfirst into the regulation, right? And and that actually is going to be the thing that differentiates us and perhaps provides us with that competitive advantage. Another way of looking at it is as a hedge. Right. Yeah. It's um, it's okay. We are operating in a gray area, and if I have the capital and the time, maybe I do go out and get a license just in case, in case a you know a rainy day comes, and and I find I find that the industry is moving in that direction because these things can take, you know, uh, a year or fifteen months, and you can't lose fifteen months of time when the regulatory landscape shifts under you. So there, there are all sorts of uh, strategies in the space. And, and I, I, you know, it's one of the things I really enjoy about my job is, is getting to have a, a deep think about what it means for Firebox. Yeah, yeah, 100%. On that note, you know, what, what, what do you predict the major shifts will be in the global regulation landscape for digital assets in so, 2024? I've been, thinking, I've been thinking a lot about it. I've been thinking a lot about it because we have been in a, you know, a crypto winner. And, and that crypto winner, I think, is, was, uh, it's not only the drop in asset prices, right? It's, it's the failure of uh, many, many major names in the space, right? I don't think this has been anywhere near as bad, but my thoughts have gone to the, the last financial crisis of 2008-09. And actually, what, what's interesting about the analogy or, or, or thinking back to that time period is that the way we kind of solved it 
at the time was through this major coordinated policy response. And that's precisely what we haven't seen yet in the digital asset space. I don't have any indication yet that we have that kind of multilateral consensus around digital assets. And what I th- where, where I think that leaves us is actually also in a very interesting place, which is a number of regional powers that have taken an interest in the digital asset space. I think the MAS is a great example. Um, I think we've also seen recent uh, actions in Hong Kong that tell us that, that they're interested in, in seeing expansion in the space. Um, Australia, just, just to stay with APAC a little bit, but I think we're gonna see experimentation at the, the the level of the regional and kind of kind of the local uh, nation state level, and that could end up being very influential. The reason I say that, right, is if you look at what Europe has done with Mika, um, I've had conversations with other regulators who have said basically some form of, hey, we're thinking about getting into digital asset regulation. We're not sure what we should do, but we feel like maybe we should just do Mika. Right. So 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 this is not like Europe acting is not the same as the G7. It's not the same as the G20. And yet here we are in a situation where what they've done is already percolating through a global ecosystem of interested potential regulators. The current fragmentation of regulatory regimes, you know, that that's a boon for your business, right? Well, I think, you know, to be frank, right, it's an opportunity. Yeah. And what that opportunity looks like is, um, you know, we're here in, in Singapore. I'm, I've traveled here in Singapore, right? And part of the reason we have a presence here is because we view the MAS as a partner that we can have conversations with. They're obviously um, operating sandboxes of various kinds. And these sorts of things, if you have a really good idea and you have um, someone that you can at least have a conversation with about it, these are really powerful uh, opportunities. And so um, in that sense, you know, yes, we, we do view the fragmentation as a chance for really good ideas to be heard and potentially implemented. Can you give us a sense of how you see your firm, Fireblocks, uh, navigating this evolving regulatory environment over the next few years? Yeah, so I, th- I think we have a few objectives. I mean, listen, uh, at the end of the day, we're, we're, we're business focused. What we want to do is we want to grow the customer base. What we see as a, as a dependency for growing the customer base, right, is the world becoming safer and safer for digital assets. And that can mean a few things, um, but I definitely think it means regulatory clarity. So in jurisdictions where everyone is operating in the gray space, that might be fine for the digital asset firms that are doing that, but it might not be fine for those big banks we were talking about who are going to need probably a little bit more to come off the sidelines. So, uh, you know, a big part of the job in my role is trying to um, to have those conversations, trying to encourage and, and create conditions to, you know, really like make the world safe for fireblocks and make the world safe for digital asset adoption. And and so, yeah, that, I think that's, that's one of the things we're focused on. I, I think... The Fireblocks product offers access to something like 50 plus chains, uh, different blockchains. So I was just wondering, is it is this a function of what the clients want? If they say, hey, you know, we want Celestia blockchain or XYZ blockchain, and, and then you start to build out that capability? Or, or are there, you know, some kind of other d- deeper considerations um, before you start offering the, the, these, these chains? Yeah, it's 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 true that we are incredibly customer focused, right? And and historically, I think even more so than today. So we started in a place where um, really the business was built on a segment that we call crypto native. These are basically uh, trading firms and e- either trading on behalf of their own customers or just um, themselves. 
And so a lot of the strategies that these firms looked to execute had to do with adding various blockchains to the platform. As we've evolved over time, this continues to be a major segment for us, but as we've evolved over time, I think we have raised the bar for considering whether a new chain should really come onto the platform. And I think we've built a product roadmap that frankly has so many interesting things on it that just adding chains at any request is is now something that, that we just scrutinize a lot more closely. Let's let's move on to some of the you know more tasty things that are happening in the US. Bitcoin ETF approvals. What's going on there? What what's your hot take? <laughs> yeah. So I'm 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 kind of like uh I'm kind of getting a little optimistic about the U.S., which is a, a completely dangerous place to put myself <laughs> in. But I've been I've been watching the market very closely, and I'm obviously based in uh, in New York City, and it feels to me like we have a few potential catalysts in the U.S. that could you know really uh, really open up that market to to digital assets. So we've already seen Bitcoin, either and other assets basically have a great year for themselves up, I think, over 120% year over year. That's a catalyst, right? People take pay attention when that happens, whether they um, think they're done with Bitcoin or, or not. Uh, <laughs> it it tend, <laughs> tends to open the eyeballs. Um, and then, of course, like uh, rumors about ETFs are, are driving this. So I think not to go too deep into the legal, but the SEC declined to pursue an appeal of the of the decision, um, basically saying that the, the ETFs had to go forward. So I do expect to see one or more of the ETF applications approved, if not by the end of the year, then very early next. Of course, once one is approved, that's the roadmap for everyone else. So to the extent they're, they're not approved immediately, then you would expect um, an amended filing that is then approved. So I think the ETFs are coming in the United States. That's two catalysts, the, the price of the asset and the ETFs. And then I think it's entirely possible before the end of the year, we have a, um, a third. So if U.S. Congress can kind of um, pull itself together, they may address themselves to a spending bill. And it may be the case that stablecoin legislation gets attached to that spending bill. These are kind of the rumors that, that go around the hill. But if, if, you have, if you have those three things, like I said, I, I call, call them catalysts. But I think if you get enough of them, you, you really start to pick up momentum. Well, what about the U.S. presidential election um, with, uh, I think, last week? Was Vivek Ramaswari said that he'd fire the SEC if he was elected? I mean, the, the, does politics uh, uh, get in the mix of uh, of catalysts as well? Yeah, it's and and this is one of the, the the strangest things that's that's ever happened to me in this job, right? Is is having to take a commercial interest in political outcomes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, we certainly look at the U.S. presidential election as a as another potential catalysts, a lot of things can happen, whether it's in the Senate or the House. And unfortunately, I would add, digital assets have become too much of a political issue in the United States. It's really an issue that I think has to do with national security and economic prosperity, which is something I think most Americans can agree on. But, you know, short answer, you know, absolutely. What happens in the next election could potentially change the outlook for the industry. So I I want to go Go back a little bit to what you talked about, about stable coins, right? So I understand Fireblocks uh, worked with the Australia government at some point to develop a stable coin. I mean, how do you guys look at uh, CBDCs? What role do you think that CBDCs are going to play in the future of finance? Because, you know, different geographies, different jurisdictions, they have very different motivations for CBDCs, right? It could be uh, trade financing, it could be you know, purpose-bound money, it could be for remittances, various reasons. So, I mean, how, how do you look at CBDCs you know, in, in a broader digital asset background? So we made just a great hire, former uh, Bank of England 
experience. And this role is focused entirely on CBDCs um, and promoting CBDCs. I think it's a really interesting idea. And I think what we will see will be a little bit of, of, of a slow adoption curve. And the reason I say that is because I think for all the reasons you've alluded to, CBDCs are a very specific thing to a very specific place a government might find itself in. I'll just take the U.S. Um, context. I, I don't see the U.S. adopting a CBDC except on a wholesale level. The reason I say that is because of the structure of our central banking system in the United States. So you have a Federal Reserve, which is the bank to all of our major banks, right? So the Federal Reserve doesn't interact with the public. And so it might make sense for them to digitize their interactions with the retail banks. But I think it makes much more sense for the United States, um, and I alluded to stablecoin legislation, to basically enable the, uh, the, the retail banks themselves to issue coins, stable coins. And I think these would function like a CBDC, right? So, uh, so, so, so my point is to say that every government will find itself in a, you know, a, a different situation and starting from a different place, right? A, a different infrastructure sort of place. And I think from there, they can decide what projects are, are interesting to them. So private stable coins are the way to go. <laughs> I think we're going to see a, a really fascinating future where, with a proliferation of private stablecoins. And I've already had, had calls with uh, certain rating agencies that, yeah. that, that are excited. So, <laughs> so, so, Triple I mean, A stablecoin. I mean, I, mean, you, you, I mean, you can imagine name the bank, right? It's like this bank's stablecoin versus that bank with the rating yeah. agencies over the top yeah. basically doing, uh, d- doing this uh, assessment on their health. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, they'll, and they'll trade it. So, so none of the U.S. banks will exactly, make it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, we've had a great conversation so far, Jason. We've covered regulation stuff. We've covered stable coins. We've covered what Fireblocks does. We would like to just you know, ask you for some of your parting thoughts. Uh, any advice for our listeners who are trying to stay compliant, uh, whether they be running digital asset companies or trading on their own? You know, how do they stay on the right side of compliance in this fast-moving world of digital assets? Yeah, I, it's 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 a great question, and uh, a lot of companies uh, are operating out there in, in gray zones, right? If you're gonna be in the digital asset space, it's a it's a good thing if you can tolerate a little bit of uncertainty, for sure. <laughs> that's 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 kind of the the first thing. But um, no, I think I think there's a lot of help that's already out there, and that's and that's coming. Again, one of the things we're focused on, where we see a lot of opportunity, is in the proliferation of reg tech and, and, and regulatory solutions. We've partnered with a number of companies, whether it's Notabene offering travel rule services or Elliptic and, and Chain Analysis offering these sorts of services. So there are platforms that are putting together a whole suite of services to help companies identify their obligations and, and stay compliant. And I think, that, I think that process continues. Again, I think that's one of the really exciting uh, areas to look at going forward. Thanks for your time, Jason. It's been great speaking to you and hearing about what you do and what Fireblocks does. Thanks, Jason. Stay tuned for our show next week.